0: Hebrews chapter 1. It will be on the screen as soon as I see Davy, but I don't see him. So as soon as Davy's back, we'll have it on the screen. Uh, But before we get started this morning, this is a sermon that I would say the Lord has been working in my heart uh, for about a year now. Uh, About a year now that I have been wrestling with some of the ideas that we will be facing in the text this morning. Uh, Luke, if you go ahead and uh, hit undo live and then hit the Microsoft Edge button on the bottom. There we go, that should give me control. Um, This sermon has not been an easy one to write because it confronts a lot of what's in my own heart. It confronts a lot of what's in my own life. And so this morning, as as we come before the text, here is my prayer. My prayer is that I would not be the only one that God is teaching this. And if I am, then the text is still good for you at another time as well. Let me uh, explain a little bit about where I'm coming from. Many of you have heard me say this before, but it's something that I I firmly believe, Uh, but it's that we do not change or see gospel renewal in our city by adding more Christian activity to our lives. That, That is not how we change. We change and become transformed into the image and likeness of Christ by beholding him. By seeing him, we become, as people, what we behold. And and so my hope this morning as we uh, get into this text is that we would build off of that theme, not necessarily looking at a specific story. We will sit in Hebrews, but then I want us to just take kind of a 30,000-foot view of who Jesus is and what he is for us. (laughs) So here's what I want to ask uh, before we get started. Who in this room has ever been in a place where they feel like God is not speaking to them? Who in this room has ever been in a place where you feel like God's not speaking to them? You can raise them higher. It's not, you, know, you don't have to be embarrassed by that. Like there are multiple people in this room who feel that, who, who feel like, man, I I know that I have believed the gospel. I I know that I have been in church for a while, and yet I seem to be in a season where I just could not tell you who God is or where he is. I seem to be in a season where I just don't know if the Lord is speaking to me. What I want us to realize this morning is that that experience is not the exception. That experience is not the exception. This has been what I would say is a uniquely challenging year for me for a variety of reasons. And it's, just full disclosure, easier to preach this sermon to somebody else than it is to my own congregation. So here we go. Uh, as a young father, father with young kids who refused to sleep, <laughs> uh, a busy schedule, um, this has been a year where hearing from the Lord has been much more difficult. Being with the Lord has been much more difficult. And so I don't know, maybe some of you have misconceptions about pastors. Maybe you think that uh, pastors wake up in the morning and they float out to their Bibles by coffee that's been prepared by the angels and they just sit in the presence of God for hours. But that has uh, certainly not been my last year. My last year has been hard and grueling work to see what the Lord is doing. It doesn't it doesn't mean that he's not doing something, but it's been hard work for me to see it. Being with God has been hard work in my life lately. So if somebody were to come into my office one week and they were to say, hey, um, Pastor, I want you to know that um, I'm, I just feel like the Lord has not spoken to me in a long time. I, I don't know where he is. I don't see him. I, I would probably run them through a pastoral diagnosis for a variety of things. I would say, um, is there unrepentant sin in your life? Ryan Little made a a great point as he led us into the Lord's table earlier this year, this month, and he said said this, and I I thought it was a profound point. Communion with God can be broken by unrepentant sin in our lives. (laughs) That's true. Like when we are unrepentant in our sin, it's easy to be, to be feeling like we cannot connect with the Lord. And, and Ryan made that wonderful point as we came to the Lord's table to give us an opportunity to walk in an area that may keep us from knowing where God is, is when we have sin that is unrepentant in our lives. Uh, so I would ask that question, and then, and then I'd move on, and I would say, uh, okay, uh, are you making time for God? Right? Like, it's easy to say, hey, I'm not seeing the Lord, but it's like, well, you're waking up five minutes before you're supposed to be at work, and you're getting home, and you're watching TV until the minute you go to bed, and then you fall asleep on your phone. Like, uh, maybe that's the reason why, like, are you not actually posturing your life to see the Lord? And if they said, no, like, man, here's my schedule. I'm waking up every morning. I'm, I'm in the Word, and it just feels dry. I feel like I'm not getting anything. It feels academic. Then I would say, okay, <laughs> all right, you've got the first two down. Is there unforgiveness in your heart towards a brother or sister in the Lord? Like, is there anyone that you know that is in the church that, man, you are harboring unforgiveness towards them? And, and, and if they said, no, really, like, man, I, I, have, I try to keep a, a really, like, no record of wrongs. I've been trying to really actively do that. And then I would say, okay. <laughs> If you are answering no to all these things, then I have some difficult news for you. The Lord might be working something in your life right now, and he's using distance, or at least felt distance, to teach you that. Now, that's an unpopular idea for us in the Christian church. We don't like to hear that the Lord might be allowing us to not feel his presence for a season. But here's here's why this actually matters, um, that the Lord does this for a variety of reasons, but, but one in particular. If we believe that there's a formula for how to reach God, then we believe more in a God that is like Superman or Batman than we do believe in a God who is the God of the universe. So here's what I mean by that. The formula to reach God is not to put a sign on a light and flash it into the sky and then before you know it, Batman will show up whenever you're ready for him. The formula to reach God is not witchcraft. There are things we can do and there are things that God says will impede communion with him and yet we cannot believe that if we do those things, then therefore we will always experience his presence no matter what. That's formulaic Christianity. That's not what we see in Scripture. In fact, if you have that formula, you have a lot of problem with most of the Psalms and the entire book of Job. Like, you don't know what to do with most of the Psalms, where he says, I have been righteous, I've even confessed presumptuous sins, and yet here I am, and wickedness surrounds me. You don't know what to do with Job, who in the very beginning of the book is called a blameless man. That title is held for very few people in Scripture. And so here's where the difficulty comes. And I got to move. We all believe uh, that God still speaks to people. Uh, we don't believe that he, he spoke for about a you know, uh, four to 6,000 year period and then just kind of decided to drop off the map. We believe that God is still speaking, maybe not in the same authoritative way as Scripture is, but, but we believe that he still speaks to his people, that he is present with his people. So what do we do if we believe that when it feels like God is not there? What do we do? Maybe this is you today. Maybe it's not. And if it's not, don't worry. You'll have a season, probably multiple throughout your life. You're pushing for God's presence, and it just seems like he is silent. What do we do in moments when we no longer seem to be hearing from God? What do we do when we've been posturing ourselves to receive his presence. We've been walking in obedience. We're confessing sin. We're pursuing unity with the body of Christ. And we still aren't feeling him. We still aren't seeing him. We still don't know where he is. What do we do? Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 3. Hear the word of the Lord this morning. Long ago... After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Here is what we know about the church that is being written to in the book of Hebrews. Almost nothing. We know very little about them. We, we don't really know where they are. We don't know who constitutes the makeup of this church. We're not even totally sure who the writer of the book is. In fact, we come to Hebrews and we're left asking more questions than we have answers for, which I think is intentional. We come to the book of Hebrews asking questions and we get very little answers. But here's what we do know about that church, that they are a suffering church. They are a church that, as the writer will say later on, uh, essentially what he says is, I know that the Christian walk has gotten hard. You have persevered, but you have not persevered to the point of the shedding of blood, which means you have not died for this yet. You've been persevering. It's getting uncomfortable. It's difficult. It is not easy to be a Christian in the social sphere, but you have not yet shed your blood for this. Uh, you're right there in the middle ground where any moment now, this might get really intense. They are suffering. They are feeling, they are feeling the weight of being in a society that does not see, the things, see things the same way that they see things. That doesn't sound familiar at all, does it? They are, they are in a society that is feeling that weight. They, they're feeling the weight of the suffering, and, and here's the question that they're asking. Where is God in this? Where is God? Where is he? And and so we see this throughout the book, this complex thing begin to happen. They're asking this question, what happens when we don't know where God is? What do we do with that? And so in in today's day and age, maybe we would scramble for solutions, right? We don't like discomfort. And so anytime the the uncomfortability of God not being present shows up, we seek instant gratification. And so we try to run from those feelings. We don't like waiting. And so we run from the waiting. Here's, here's how I know this. Maybe I'm the only one that's noticed this, if, if that's the case, that's shocking. Is, is nobody else frustrated with the fact that Amazon used to be two days shipping and now it's like a week? What has happened there? This is not my time to get on Jeff Bezos, but this is my time to say it's revealing in my heart, I do not like the process of waiting. I want it in two days. In fact, I'm shocked that Amazon has not figured out how to get it to me an hour after I've ordered it yet. Even here in El Paso, we're a big enough city. I need to move on. Um, Talk to me later about my issues with Amazon. Um, There are, there's this revelation to us that we don't like the process of waiting. We've all seen that. We know that in various areas. And, And so what do we do? We self-medicate with our age of distraction. Imagine, if you will, that you have been standing in line for two seconds, it's two seconds longer than you would have liked to be standing in line, and so the first thing you do is you pull out your smartphone and you hope that maybe somebody thinks you're important enough to text you. They have not texted you, and so you hope maybe somebody thinks you're important enough to post about you. They have not posted about you, and so what do you find? That you are in an endless stream of scrolling. Throw your social media as time passes, because you can't handle the waiting. Neither can I. Neither can I. I, We are impatient people, so we self-medicate. And it does work for a time. We feel a little bit better. Maybe we distract ourselves from what we're feeling. Maybe we even stay busy enough to forget, but inevitably... Other voices always leave us wanting more, always leave us craving for more or maybe uh, some of us, we're we're feeling distant from God, and so we just say, ah, if the Lord could just give me one word, if he could just give me one word, I'd be satisfied. If I knew exactly what he wanted me to do today, if he could just tell me what what his will and plan for my next five years is, if he could just answer these prayers that I have been praying over and over again, then I'd be happy. Then I'd know that he hears me, then I'd be able to continue on in the Christian life. If I could just get him to speak, then I'll know that I'm secure. Well, this is what's happening in this church. They they have faced this question of where is God? And they have begun to self-medicate with other voices or seeking to find an answer to the distance they felt in experience. We don't like waiting. We don't like waiting. In fact, as we move on throughout this book, if we were to spend the time to read it, we would see that they would be moving on from the gospel. They would move on to other things to save them. They would be a church that decides that angel worship seems to be more prevalent, so we're going to move into that because we seem to hear voices more that way. They would be a church that would move back to the old ways of rituals that had been prescribed in the Old Testament. And they would say, well, we can do this because at least then that we know it's tangible in front of us that God's here and working and speaking. They would move past Jesus. The author writes to this church, and he, he's working to help them to better understand their situation and their suffering. And essentially, the message of Hebrews is this. Uh, Jesus is God's message to you. Jesus is the sure and steady anchor for the soul. See, what's happening when we feel that weight of of moving and not feeling God and we wish that he would just show up and we decide to self-medicate, what's happening and what the author of Hebrews assumes is that you and I, just like the early church, are a people who will naturally drift away from God. The author of Hebrews assumes that in his writing. He uses the words that Jesus is an anchor. What is an anchor? An anchor is what holds the boat steady in the storm. The author assumes that you and I are just boats being tossed to and fro by the waves. And we need an anchor. We need something to hold us steady. And Jesus is... That anchor. Thank you. (laughs) Somebody had to. I mean, Jesus is the anchor. That's Scripture. The author of Hebrews assumes that, and there's an assumption that we will drift away. And so the emphasis of the book is you may be not hearing God. You may be not seeing God. You may not understand God. Hold fast to Jesus, and he will hold fast to you. So what does the author do? In these first three verses of the book, he reintroduces us to Jesus. He begins the passage with beginning with how God spoke. He comes out of the gate strong. He says, God used to speak through the prophets, various ways of speaking through these prophets. You'd kind of get an unclear sort of picture. uh, But now... Now God has spoken through his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he made the world. God the Father creates by God the Son. Everything in this entire world has been created by God, through God, and for God everything. So when this text says that he, Jesus, his son, is the heir of all things, the author is telling us that in Jesus we see the point of everything. We see the point of it all. We, we see the reason for everything, not just why things were created, but the way in which God is redeeming and reconciling all things to himself. This is not individual personal sal- salvation. This is cosmic. Everything being redeemed by God the Son. And this is a fundamental framework for us as believers. Uh, the mind of the believer needs to be shaped by this. The mind of the believer needs to be shaped that we understand the world rightly through the lenses of Jesus. In this idea of Christ being the heir of all things, here's what we're seeing. If Christ is the heir of all things, then no matter how pointless you think your life is, it's not. No matter how pointless you think the season you're going through is, it's not. No matter how pointless you think the things that you're seeing out in the world are, they're not. Like all of that, all of it, all of it culminates in being a part of Christ's inheritance. That's what this text is telling us. He is the heir of all things. Your life, brothers and sisters, hear me here. Friends, hear me here. Your life has meaning. Your life has meaning and value and purpose because it's caught up in God's story. You carry Christ. (laughs) If you are in Christ, then you carry Christ with you. You carry Christ as someone who is part of his eternal inheritance. It was literally through him that you were created, and it is for him that you were created. Not in my notes. I got to do it. Psalm 2, best psalm in all of the psalms. Psalm 2, we see this picture. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? They do not like that their life is meant for God. They want their own autonomy, their own rule, and what does the text tell us? God laughs at that, and then he says this at the end, and I love this. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Which means that the implication for us is that every single one of us seem to be raging and the way in which we take refuge is by re- reorienting our hearts to the king. Reorienting and recognizing that, man, we've been raging and we're against him. All these things that are, that are raging against the world or raging against the Lord will not overcome him. All they are doing is giving the God of the universe a good laugh. Should that not shape and form the way that we look at the world as Christians? Like God thinks it's like a toddler throwing a temper tantrum. And while those can be frustrating, if we're honest with ourselves, most of the time they're a little bit funny to watch. Maybe I'm just sick. If your life is part of of God's inheritance, if your life is part of the Son's inheritance, this gives meaning to what we often think is otherwise meaningless. So many of us are stuck where we are because we don't truly believe that God is doing something. We don't truly believe that these things have value. So many of us are stuck in our sins because we don't truly believe that everything we do matters. Move on. The Son and His work. He begins by telling us He spoke through His Son. All things culminate in His inheritance. He is the creator of the world. And then it begins to unpack His work. What the Son does, who the Son is. The first thing that the Son does is He is imaging God perfectly. So here's what that means for us. Uh, When we see Jesus, we see most clearly God's glory on display and his image as it was intended to be seen. This is not like you got a family picture done and my dad's in town. It's not like we got a family picture done and I'm standing next to my dad and we look like two different people. Like the sun images God perfectly. This is not a picture is being taken. You're like, oh, they got my bad side. The sun images God perfectly. Here's what this means. The fullness of God's plan for the world and creation is found in the mystery of the incarnation. Like in Jesus, the word made flesh, God's wisdom and knowledge is fully revealed. When we look to Jesus, we see the exact representation of God's character. His righteousness, his love, his power, his justice, wisdom, every blessing ever promised, whatever God has promised, whatever God has, whatever God is, it's all found in Jesus. When we look to Christ and we see him in scripture and we hear him preached, we can know what God is like. And we can begin to understand who he is and we can begin to understand his heart for us. When we see Jesus, we see God who upholds the universe by the word of his power. When we see Jesus, we see the way in which God is sustaining the world. Let's upholding the world by his power. Without the word of God made most clear to us in Christ, our understanding of everything falls apart. Nothing makes sense. In fact, uh, according to this text, upholds the world by the word of his power would imply that without Jesus, nothing exists. Nothing. Nothing. It is in Him that we live and move and have our being. So the Son is the Lord of all creation. He's the the one who all of it was made for. He images God perfectly, and then He shifts His thinking from what the Son has been doing since creation, since the beginning of the foundation of the world, and He moves His thinking into what Jesus is doing right now. Have you ever wondered what Jesus is doing right now? Like, is He just up in heaven, like, kind of having game of catch with his dad what's like what's going on like what is Jesus doing right now I'm glad you asked and so is the text after making purification for sins as the first clause that we see at the end of verse 3 God speaks through the work of the son in the purification of sins so maybe you like me are somebody who's in process right? You, you are not where you want to be in your life. You look at your life and you look at even your, your path with the Lord and you're a little bit disappointed. You think, man, I should be further along from this right now. I should have some of this stuff down. Well, God speaks to that process. He speaks to that process in the work of Jesus on the cross who takes on the sins of the world. Listen, hear this. In the cross, Jesus is doing the work of making those of us who are dead alive. In the cross, Jesus is making it possible for God to forgive us of our trespasses. In the cross, Jesus is canceling the record of debt that stands against us. In the cross, he is setting aside your sin by nailing it to the cross. Here's what this means. You are in process, but notice the way this sentence works having made purification for sins. What is the verb tense there? Past. That work is finished, my friends. So you're looking at your process thinking, man, I should be further along, and Jesus is looking at your process and saying, done. And here's what he's doing now. Look at this. Oh, man, I love this passage of Scripture. He sat down in heaven. This is great. In ancient Jewish culture, to sit down implied that you were finished working. So when you sat down in ancient Jewish culture, the day was done, the work was done, you said the project's finished. So when Jesus sits down at the right hand of the Father, what he's saying is, it's done. (laughs) The work is finished, my friends. The work is finished. The purification for your sins is finished, which means this, as you and I enter into this process that we are all in, we know it's finished. We can enter in with confidence. We can enter in with confidence because our sanctification is bought on the cross of Christ. The purification of our sins is not something that happens in the future once we've figured it out. It is something that happened when Jesus died on the cross for your sins. And so when we enter into the work of sanctification, we're doing so with great confidence that Christ... Will indeed purify his people. Like, this is not one of those texts that says, after making purification for sins for those of them who figured it out. After making purification for sins for his people, he sits down, he's finished you are stepping into the process of growing into Christ-likeness, knowing that Christ is going to finish that work in you as you actively engage and he does the work. This is not sit back and say, Lord, I'd really love it if you'd help me with this thing. I'm not going to try, but if you could one day figure out how to get me there, I would love that. This is, I'm actively engaging the work with confidence because I know that my sin has been defeated. In Jesus, God's most prominent word pronounced over your life is found. In Jesus, God's most prominent word pronounced over your life is found. You don't have to go looking for other words to be spoken to you. You don't have to wonder when Jesus is going to show up and maybe make some things a little bit different. You can actively engage knowing that God has spoken a truth over you in Jesus Christ. That God has spoken clearly to you in Jesus Christ. And that when we don't know where God is, we need look no further than Jesus. And so if you will, with me for a moment, allow me to show us how God speaks to us in various situations. Maybe you're in here this morning and you're wondering if this is all it is. You're kind of doubting. You, you've come before the, the Word of God. You've, come before, you've been doing the church thing for a while. You have more questions than you have answers and you are doubting whether or not Jesus could use you in your doubt. Matthew 28, many of us know it as the famous passage where Jesus gives his great commission, but there's a little clause right before Jesus comes to them and gives them the mission of the church. It says that they worshipped and some doubted. Jesus does not hightail it out of there after that. He's not like, oh, they're doubting, so I got to run. I can't trust them with my presence. I can't trust them with the Holy Spirit. I cannot trust them with the mission of the church. No, they are doubting, and it says that Jesus moves towards them. If this is you today, where you have come in here wondering what to believe, all you've seen from Christianity has left you wanting, You've been through all the motions, you've said all the prayers, yet you haven't felt the presence of God. You've been walking in unknown, not seeing Jesus. You've got questions and there is no answer that I could give you today that would be more powerful for your life than for you to know that Jesus does not look at your doubt and run the opposite direction. He looks at your doubt and he moves towards you. He moves towards you. He desires to reveal himself to you. He is not (laughs) running in the opposite direction of you, friend. He's inviting you into his story, into his mission, into his life. Maybe you're in here this morning and you say, okay, but how does Jesus speak to the sinner? Well, regardless of what we've already seen in our passage, maybe you're in here this morning and you're saying, I cannot rid myself of these sins. I am just weighted down. I cannot seem to get rid of these things. What would Jesus say to me? I want to rid the sins of my life and I just can't what would Jesus say to me? In John chapter 8, we see a story. A woman who has been caught in adultery and she is brought before the Lord and many are surrounding her ready to give her the death penalty for her sin. And Jesus, (laughs) the only one in that entire crowd who has the right to condemn her, does not condemn her. He sits down and and he writes in the sand. What he writes is is neither here nor there, but at, at that moment, beginning from the oldest to the youngest, everyone drops their stones and walks away until it is Jesus and this woman, Jesus who is the God of the universe in human flesh, who images God perfectly. Some of us view him as a stoic who maybe just kind of sat there and was like, neither do I condemn you. No, Jesus looks at her. He loves her and he lifts up her face and he says, "Woman, does no one here condemn you? Neither do I. Go and sin no more." He looks at her and he loves her and he invites her into a life of freedom. And if this is you today where your sin has been resulting in condemnation being heaped upon you and you are sitting under the sound of my voice wondering if you could ever be forgiven, well, I have good news for you, my friend. Jesus looks at you and loves you. He says there's no condemnation for you. You don't have to live in that any longer. You don't have to stay in this. You have been offered a way out by the God who stands in between you and those who would condemn you. Look to Jesus and see freedom. Look to Jesus and see the beauty of grace. See a God who is not throwing stones at you, but is instead stepping in front of those stones, taking the punishment for you to give you your dignity and your value and your worth back. And then he invites you. He is not done with you, friend. He invites you, he says, go and sin no more. Why? Not because Jesus's forgiveness is conditional upon your showing up and performing but because your sin does not have the final word over your life. That's not who you are. Jesus has the final word over your life and he says that that sin is not who you are, that he has purified you. You are not stuck. The God of the universe has given you a greater identity, one of no condemnation. Maybe you're in here this morning and you say, Austin, I'm not doubting. I know who God is. I am not sinning. Uh, not, not habitually anyway. I mean, we all have sin, but I, there's no prevalent sins in my life that would cause me to wonder where Jesus is. But I am suffering. I am hurting, and I don't believe that God is good. In John 11, we see a story where one of Jesus' friends has died, a man by the name of Lazarus, and Lazarus' sister comes before Jesus and she says this to Jesus. She says, Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. So many of us get really uncomfortable with that. How dare she say that to Jesus? What is she thinking? But he does not correct her theology. He doesn't say, well, let me let you know something here. Let me tell you what I know that you don't know. No, he says he was deeply moved. In other texts, we are informed that not only was he moved, but he was a God who weeps. (laughs) If Jesus is God revealed to us, then how he responds in the face of suffering and death is exactly how God responds. God moves near to his people when they suffer. He doesn't run in the opposite direction. And while suffering is the place where we find it hardest to see God's goodness on display, It's also the place where God's goodness is most clearly revealed to us because it's in Jesus' suffering that God makes a way for us to have hope forevermore. (laughs) Jesus is the answer to the question, is God good in suffering? God doesn't give our questions of suffering. Uh, He doesn't answer our questions of suffering by giving us a philosophical answer. He answers the questions of suffering by getting his hands dirty by entering the world as the suffering servant, the man of sorrows well acquainted with grief so that we can have a high priest who pays the price for sin, which is the ultimate cosmic cause of evil in the world. If you are in here this morning and you are in a season of suffering, God speaks to you by his son who subjected himself to that very same suffering so that you can have a future that was worth rejoicing in. So that you could say that all of this has meaning. So that you can know, even in this, while the body is dying, while you are feeling the weight of a broken world, death is not defeat for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. And this light and momentary affliction is producing for you a weight of glory far beyond what you can comprehend because Jesus has suffered and died and then is exalted you. Even in your suffering and what feels like death will be exalted because of Christ. My friends, Jesus speaks. He speaks a clear and present word of who God is. He speaks even when we aren't hearing him. All we need to do is to look to Jesus, to see Jesus, and we see a clear and present word for us on display. And what does Jesus say to you today, my friends? He says, come. All who are weary and need rest take my yoke upon you and learn from me for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The invitation is to come to him, the author, the finisher of our faith who speaks very clearly to us who our God is and who we are in light of that. Let's pray. Hmm. God, I thank you that this morning you are not (laughs) distant and aloof, even though sometimes we don't know where you are, but you are a God that has given us your Son, not so that we... (laughs) can have a theological platitude to to wave across situations, but so that we would see who you are and that we would know that by your blood shed on the cross, you have rescued us. You have redeemed us. You have bought and paid for our lives. You are speaking to us even now by your son who is interceding on our behalf, who every time sins would come up, you point to the cross. You say, look, I did it. Every time suffering comes up, we see your exalted state and we know, and we know, and we know that you are victorious. Help us to see you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.